0: everybody to another edition of the groundsman conversations joining me as always my two fellow men in the middle giles morgan and roger mitchell roger just come to you first how is
1: italy you underwater yeah underwater. interestingly this morning i met a guy that's uh, a follower of the show who you met in melbourne a guy called lucian and he Lovely came over family, to yeah. For, yeah for the weekend and he went to the finestra restaurant and then uh, we had coffee this morning very very interesting so all is well here in italy all so good. you're not,
0: you're not you're not subsumed by the floods where you are. The no,
1: thank no. not. The weather's not great, but no, the, the, it has been raining, but nothing like that. All right, and and the other man who spends his life underwater, Giles Morgan. Hi, mate. How are you? <laughs> well,
2: I'm fine. I mean, Roger can talk about that. He lives in Italy. He lives in, and breathes the air. I go there for my birthday last week to go and see Springsteen with my wife, and. Um, Well, I mean, the the concert was deluged. I mean, it was literally, I mean, poor old Penny. She went, she came along. She's not a big Springsteen fan. I told her to buy some shoes. She She went to an Italian shoe shop. She got herself some shoes. It was nine inches under mud. And I had silence for quite a lot of the journey back. They decided to cancel all the trains. We got back about three in the morning and it rained all the time in Bologna. So, um yeah, I'm uh, I'm recovering and doing quite a lot of um, reparations. Let's put it that way.
0: Of course, the benefit of taking someone who's not a Springsteen fan to a Springsteen concert is that they're generally quite short affairs, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> I think yes. he would play for about three and a half hours. I've not seen him in concert.
2: It is it is, it is astonishing. I mean, he's 73 years old and, you know, I know we've had a, a go at him. He is my all-time hero. I've seen him a lot of times. For a 73, 74-year-old bloke to play for three and a half hours with not stopping, he literally calls in one, two, three, four, and off he goes on his next thing with a 19-piece band. Just astonishing live entertainment. I think the guy, when he packs up the East Street Band, I think he'll probably keel over. I don't think he'll know what to do with himself, but it was, um, it was so good. I told my wife at the end when we were waiting for a train that arrived at one o'clock in the morning and uh, waiting in Ferrara station to get back to Bologna that I'd already got tickets for the 6th of July in London. She said, I'm not sure I'm coming. Oh my From Tickets, God.
0: plural, okay. Well, it sounds like at his age, Giles, that saying one, two, three, four at the beginning of every song is quite a good check. If he starts saying <laughs> yes. one, four, three, two, you know, it's right through, it's time, to it's, go time
2: off to it's time to stop. Anyway, it was lovely to eat. Rog, very sweetly, I'd asked him about Bologna. It's a city I know he used to live in, and he talked about the three Ts, and I ate a lot of tortellini, let's put it that way, Rog. Well,
1: what are the three Ts? Giles, i believe be it's
2: i believe it's uh towers tortellini and tets is that right <laughs>
1: yes <laughs> there's a lot of good looking girls in bologna uh, traditionally yes <laughs> those are the three teas well done for sticking to the tortellini giles well done mate it's,
0: <laughs> it's a very fine it Del- delicious, delicious it was too Grant. thank we, you we have uh we have a guest joining us shortly who we will come to in a moment but before that there's always plenty to talk about and um Unlike normal, I'm going to bring the first subject up because obviously it's something we've discussed at length on this podcast many, many times, and that is golf and the uh, inevitable, I think, after what we saw at the Masters, uh, resurgence of Brooks Kepka so that a live golfer has now won one of the major championships, which I know, Roger's is going to be desperate to talk about, so I thought I'd bring this. Oh, subject they're up. Are
1: holding two, are they not, Grant? They're holding two of the major championships.
0: They're holding two, yeah, they're holding two. Yeah, that's right, because uh, Cam Smith still holds the, 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 the Open Championship. But... Um, what can you say about this week? I mean, it was a fantastic week of golf, brutal golf course. But what's been interesting to me, Rog, particularly has been if, if you watch the aftermath of this victory by Brooks Kepka, and he, like, he was the Brooks Koepka of, of four or five years yeah. ago. He was absolutely unflappable yeah. and, and you know, deserved to win it, no, no doubt. But I was really interesting watching the everything that happened afterwards. First of all, Kepka, who very interestingly – after all the talk of oh, if one of the Live guys wins the Masters, they're all going to be celebrating on the green in their team you know, polo shirts. When he was asked, I don't know if you saw Kepka's comments, but he said uh, basically said, "I'm not, I'm not thinking about Live right now. This is I've won this. This is nothing to do with Live. This is my triumph." He completely played that, which I agree with. Yeah, but I found that interesting given what we talked about in terms of his appearance on the Full Swing documentary. And interestingly enough, this Michael Block story which was, I think, a much bigger a much better story, has completely taken over the coverage. And I've been watching the coverage this morning in US and UK newspapers, and it's amazing how much coverage has been given to Michael Block and how little has been mentioned about Kepka There are powers at work here, Rog. I can promise you the media is being corralled into writing one story or choosing to, I don't know which, over another. What, what did you make of the whole thing?
1: Uh, yeah, well... I was really pleased for him because we commented when we saw that full swing, how how dark a place he was in. And we felt sorry for him and to see him come back. And, you know, I, I thought he would have held on to the Masters as well, but he didn't. But yesterday he did. And I thought that was great. I think he's an excellent golfer. Listen, you know, Liv has worked out for him. This is a guy that, and you know, this is my theme in general, that more and more these top athletes are only going to be focused on majors. And, you know, so live works for him. He gets to do very few other tournaments, gets a lot of money and he focuses on the majors. And, you know, I think that's going to be a, a theme going forward. I, I was pleased for him. I thought he was dignified at the end. I'm glad it didn't turn into this live PGA thing because I think that's getting a little bit tired. Uh, the chap Block, um, What can I say to annoy you, Grant? What can I say to annoy you about Block?
0: You've never had a trouble with that before. Why are you
1: asking me now? (laughs) Well, um, if I remember... (laughs) Open your mouth would be my advice. Did you not go on one of your romantic rants about that guy Bland at one point? Oh, isn't it wonderful at 50 he wins his first tour event? It was? Yeah. (laughs) And then he melted down with Eddie on the Twitter exchange. Well there was
0: well there was like, two years betwixt cup and lip. No, you know, look, Rog, you may, you maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. And with Giles, I'll bring you in a second because I've definitely hear your perspective on this. But it's interesting, Rog, because I don't know if you saw he got an invite, a sponsors exemption for Colonial. You know, and I think it's his fifteen minutes, right? It's his fifteen minutes. And the fact is, next year he'll play in the PGA Championship again, and people will recall the story next year, and there's a very, very high chance that He flames out next year and is one another one of the PGA professionals that doesn't make the cut like many of them don't. But what mm-hmm. a story in the moment! I thought it was just, Charles, well, oh, what did you make of that? That,
1: that hole in one was truly amazing. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? And, and you've got to love his swing because it looks a little bit the swing that we would have, you know, <laughs> yeah. the whole knees <laughs> the collapse, bendy legs and the whole impact. thing. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. I think Grant, your comments is right, though. I mean, clearly. The powers that be in the media centres were desperately trying to sort of cotton on to the, the 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 lovely story, the romantic story of, you know, PGA Championship always invites a number of professional coaches to come on and play. And then someone does very well and a hole in one. And yet the Kepka story is a story. And you're right, it's not so much about live. It's more about the best golfers in the world playing in the best events of the world and winning. And that's what the Augusta nearly threw up and, and did in a different kind of way with Kepka not quite making it. Here he comes again. He's a quality player. And I think Roger's right. If I think when all of the hype calms down, if it does, I mean, I thought, you know, Poulter's tweets were ridiculous, as, as often Ian does, he kind of gets all over excited and a bit kind of arsey about it all, is, look, these guys are just golfers trying to play their golf. What, what tour they're on is what tour they've chosen to do, whether they've chased the money or kept with the tradition. But when it comes to the four majors, that's when we're all watching. And Kepka put in an absolute virtuoso performance. And it was really, as as a golf fan, I think there are so many fans of sport, and I would definitely be one, Well, you only really cotton in on the major, major events within the sport. Your bandwidth only allows you to go to certain places. So, for instance, right now, I love May. Unlike you two, I'm not a football fan, but I do focus in on football now because it's getting to the bit of the season where there's relegation, there's promotion, there's stuff going on, and it's all exciting. The majors does exactly the same. We'll no doubt see the same with the tennis coming up. We've got the Roland Garros starting imminently, and then we have Wimbledon starting. And we all become tennis fans for about five and a half seconds, and then we'll forget all about it until the next thing. So for me, I was just really chuffed about Kepka. He's a good guy. I think he's gone through his journey and, and it was great for for great for him. Not for not for Liv, not for PGA Tour. And as always with those media centres, they're always trying desperately to sort of spin it. For those of you who live in the UK, it was really good to have a distraction away from the Philip Schofield, Holly Willoughby story that's been dominating the news here in the UK. And it's just been so boring that... Well, we'll we're come on to, to that later, story. Giles, obviously.
0: We're <laughs> building up to that because it's oh, yeah. obviously very important. <laughs> but by the way, Giles, did, did I hear you use the phrase, as a golfer there? Who are you talking about? Because it sure is some kind of a new... <laughs>
2: <laughs> as the artist formerly known as a golfer who can't play at all, yes, that's probably me. <laughs> well, what else is on your radar this week, fellas, Giles? Well, it, it's interesting. I listened to your goal and goal last week and, and loved it, chaps, as I always do. It's a, it, it always makes a, a, a car journey go just a little bit quicker. But I think this kind of. <sighs> looking at the sports which are in a certain amount of turmoil at the moment and not being able to get out of the way of themselves and traditionists versus those that are either um, reinventing themselves and, and embracing change or the new sports that are are coming through with brand new formats or just new sports like paddle and pickleball and stuff is really, really interesting to me. I noted, Grant, that you talked about the, the World Snooker finals and, and the potential of, of the Crucible moving to Qatar, or rather the, the World Snooker Championship. I was very lucky. I, I haven't spoken to you guys since then. I was very lucky. I was a guest of Barry Hearn to go to the World Snooker final. I'd never been to the Crucible I knew before. that
0: just oil protester looked familiar, Giles. I oh, knew it. That
2: was you. <laughs> it. was And do you know what, that orange powder gets bloody everywhere. It it's a nightmare and I haven't been able to get it out of all the orifices for quite some time um, but before I sunk to my knees on the bays and uh, and protested about I can't remember what um, genuinely one of the most fabulous sporting events that I've ever been to. And we had Barry on the show, whatever it was, six, seven months ago, mm-hmm. to see and him and his team and the way they operate that event, which is ostensibly, you could imagine, quite a boring event. It's just snooker, right? It's on television. It's just 14 Red Bulls and all the rest of it. My God, uh, just not only the family and the circus within World Snooker in terms of how they operate, the friendships, all the legends who are there, whether they're commentating on television or whether they're commentating in the air pieces for the audience, they're all there at the post party, you know, all the people that we knew, the friendliness with also matched with a great, great skill of what the snooker players do. but it was a reminder that also the old sports that do it well can do it very well. And Roger's always talked about this. Just because you're an old sport doesn't mean you have to be obsolete. You can shake things up. And I have to say... Of all of the sporting events that I've been to, the one I didn't think I would enjoy as much as I did was going to the final of the Crucible, and it was insane. And uh, Mr. Hearn sent his his very best to you both. He was um, on irrepressible form, just uh, an extra. And he's now turning his turrets to pool, as we know, and he's uh, off to the well. He's off to the darts in New York shortly. But um, yeah, uh, just the mass sports where they're combining entertainment with. Big interest is is what's going on, and Roger, it's what you've been writing about, talking about ad nauseam, and it's um, lovely to see it in practice. Even something as 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 slow as I thought I thought I'd be bored in snooker. We all watched as kids growing up. I, I I was spellbound, genuinely spellbound.
1: Yeah, I get that, Giles. You know their control of the cue ball. Until you see it live, y- you can't appreciate uh, what what skills they've got around that table. It's, hypnot- it's hypnotic. We well, get... you know,
2: we talk about we all talk about, you know, the the pressure of putting in golf. And you can imagine how do you sink a sort of 9-footer to win a, a major or whatever. I would argue that being in the crucible, which is only 750-800 people in there, it's absolutely vertiginous, um very very small. You can literally hear a pin drop and you dance sneeze or cough because everybody looks at you as if you're the devil incarnate. But the precision and the pressure every single shot and also the bit, I thought it would take ages, you know, that, that not all the players are quick. Even the slow players, my God, they just get through it. Just tonne breaks after tonne breaks. I, I mean, I, uh, you know, we've all, let's be honest, we've all gone to snooker halls, full-size tables, and rejoiced when we had a break of seven after an hour. And these guys yeah. are just smashing a tonne in about it's, 15 it, it, minutes. It's just amazing. It
1: really is. It really yeah, is. It really
2: is dispiriting. Yeah, so yeah. that's what I've been up to, Grant. I've been uh, enjoying May. It's my favourite time of the sporting year.
1: Fantastic. We'll give her our regards, won't you, Roger? Uh, what, I, had, uh... I, had, I had something, Grant, that that's kind of like annoyed me a little bit this week, Excellent. and yeah, well, no, but in a, in a kind of intellectual way, you know, you know how I'm a little bit of a purist in football, and and I like the. I like the the top end of the game. um, Regardless, I like the top players. I don't have an awful lot of time of, you know, uh, get it in the box and it's a 4-3 win at a lower level of quality. I've never been that kind of football fan. So we all need to admire Man City, right? You know, what we're seeing here, tactically and technically, it, it is really a magnificent team. And I've just been a bit disappointed that... You know, rather than saying all of this, everybody—and I mean everybody—the broadsheet journalists, all the kind of like Twitterati—that that, oh, you know, you know, you've cheated, you've bought the league. You know, my view on this, Grant. You know, like that's the way the world is going. We 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 need to like accept that. And and I was just very disappointed, at least for a week or two. Just say this is a magnificent team. They've won five out the last six. By the way, that's a problem in itself for the premiership now, just as Verstappen and Red Bull is for Formula One. But leave that aside for a minute. You know, why does the British, the English media have such a problem with what seems to me an obvious truism now that Arab money is financing our sport? Why is that so hard to accept?
0: I don't know that it's that, Rog, to be honest. When, I mean, I know, I know what you mean, and I read all those articles too, but I think for me there's that British sense of fair play, and I think at its root this comes much more, I don't think it's anything to do with Saudi money. I think it's money. I think it's, well, of course you can do that if you can buy the best team. And then once you get to that point, you get into the whole ethics of where the money comes from. But it's blank checkbook, right? It's, well, if, if I had a blank checkbook, I could buy the best 20 players. I mean, you saw the bench at the beginning of that game against Chelsea. I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous. And the commentators here uh, in the Cayman Islands were were joking, I think it was Lee Dixon and Graham Lasso, they were joking about how that nine on the bench would give Chelsea a good run for their money and possibly might beat them. And that's the difference, right? That's the difference between... That's why Arsenal didn't win the league. They had probably 13 players good enough and Man City have a cover at every single position on the field that would walk into any other Premier League team. So I don't think it's necessarily first and foremost, a Saudi Middle East money thing. I think it's a money thing. It's you bought the title and then we go, well, and obviously here's where the money comes from. That gives us someone else to be angry about. I, look, I, th- I think you use this phrase, brutally beautiful, and I think that's exactly what they are. They're, they're beautiful to watch. They're unstoppable, particularly in the last couple of months. And I think as a football purist, you can appreciate that we've probably mm-hmm. not seen football played like this before. It's It's on a different level to anything I've ever seen. But unless another team or two or three other teams ideally come through and can challenge them, I don't know that there's much beauty in it. You know, I I think it loses the beauty if it doesn't have a beast. And I think if we're going to watch Man City pass around every other team next year and the year after, it will lose that beauty very, very quickly. And I I think it's a great shame. I really do. I'd love to see more teams. I'd love to see Arsenal come good again next year, spend some money this year. I'd love to see Man United get back. I'm not necessarily keen on seeing Chelsea get back. I thoroughly enjoyed watching Chelsea this year as a Fulham <laughs> fan. But yeah, um, yeah I, I think it's a, I think it's a money thing first and then a source of the money thing second.
1: Well, I'm not sure people are focusing on this. These uh, breaches of the rules of Man City, they're not going to go away now. And how that plays out is going to have an immensely important effect on the Premiership. And because let's be honest, the premiership now in terms of global football is everything. And this is the problem when you've got, I've said this many times, the, the classic problem of the constitutional sport where there's no separation of powers. You are the marketeer, you are the legislative, you are the executive and you're the judiciary all on one body, which is called a premiership. And, you know, I've been in that role and you're, you don't know what to hope for. You're trying to apply your rulebook. You're trying to be fair. You're trying to do everything. But at the same time, you're thinking, well, you know, if we curtail them a little bit, you know, maybe those players won't be in our league and that we won't be able to market them and we won't get all those overseas rights. And do you know what I mean? It's like there's no backing away from this now. They've put their cards on the table. They've accused them. Man City will defend it. And they already started. And I'm telling you, this is going to be a massive story, much bigger than the one in UEFA. Much, much bigger, and how it plays out will determine the future of association football. This one, this one case.
0: What, what does it do, Rog, to this narrative and the coverage, if and potentially when they win the Champions League? Because one can imagine that will set off a whole new round of you know teeth gnashing and wailing and all sorts of stuff, and and it will it will shift the debate into that they're the best team in Europe. They've bought the best team in Europe rather than the UK.
1: Well, would you not agree, Grant, that we've already had that when UEFA took them to court and what that went the way it, it went? You it know, did, but, uh, it, but
0: but I just mean in terms of the coverage, in terms of well, well, the, 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 the you mean, the outcry. coverage in the
1: UK. In the UK, you know, the, the the this is the interesting thing. If you saw some of the commentary on the semi-final, English media, sadly, maybe it's every media, but English media can't help themselves. You know, uh, Man City will beat Real. This is a walkover. The English media is very jingoistic, not going down the line grant of saying, Oh, this money is unfair, it's giving them an unfair advantage. They were just basically saying, doesn't this prove that the premiership's the best league in the world? That that's the line you'll get in. So so I don't think the Champions League will make the slightest bit of difference. The 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 poison was this week when it's 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 hurting the premiership. and and, and that's where the story will play out. When they're playing for England against Johnny Foreigner, then I don't think the English media cares. They've still got the the, the flag. The flag that's the way, it, you know that's the way it is, Grant. It's only when they're talking in domestically that they'll have an issue with it. Yeah, it's a fair point.
0: Well, listen, before we bring a guest on, um uh I have to ask Roger if you saw the Sheffield Wednesday uh, Peterborough game no. during the week. No. did you not see this have you not have I you refer not you back happened?
1: to my previous comment about John no, football I totally get it
0: I totally get it do, do you know do you know what happened you must know what
1: happened no I have no
0: idea oh my god okay so two-legged playoff to reach the final league one right so third division for our friends abroad Sheffield Wednesday one of the oldest most storied clubs in English football yeah. they were one of the original members of the football league a proper club right Rog Sheffield proper Wednesday a proper football club proper club uh, fallen on hard times they're two leagues below the Premier League they get into the playoffs where they draw Peterborough. Uh, they go to Peterborough. They get thumped 4 0 at Peterborough. And of course, everybody's written them off. They come back to Hillsborough. They score in like the first 10 minutes, Sheffield Wednesday, and the crowd is going ballistic. They go 2 0 up in 25 minutes. The crowd gets louder. They get 3 0 up in, I think, about 50 minutes. And they score the equalizing goal in the 98th minute from a corner with literally the last the last touch of the match. They score the equalizing goal, four all. No one's ever come back from more than two goals behind. They go one nil down, they go five four down in extra time. Yeah. Uh, and they equalize with about six minutes left and then they win it on penalties. You have never seen, honestly, Rose, there's a, I'll send you a link to there's a YouTube video of the highlights. It's like a 20 minute highlight clip. It's extraordinary. And, as crazy as the game was, and as exciting as it was, it, it's everything that you and I talk about, about football. It's everything you could ever wish from a football game. But the level of skill and the level of technical ability and the way these guys, there was no hoofing it into the box. They're all trying to play the pep way now. It's fascinating to watch. they are all mm. got goalkeepers that can play the ball out of defence. It was extraordinary. I'm amazed you haven't seen this. I will send you the link because it will reaffirm your perhaps your faith in lower league football potentially come well, through and surprise Well, you, want, you want to
1: know how black my soul is now, Grant? You yeah, want to know on. how black my soul is? I've got is. a pretty good idea,
0: but surprise me.
1: I, I'd like to know the odds as as the goals went in and how the betting uh, activity of that game... Oh, Roger.
0: I'm telling oh, you. Oh, God. You, so, Grant, I, what are I, we going to do? What am I- one of my, he's in, he's, he's, we can't save him, right? He's irredeemable. My, one of my <laughs> great mates is a Sheffield Wednesday fan, been a fan for years and years. He's probably in his mid-50s. He won't thank me for saying that. Probably early 50s would be generous. And he's been an Owls fan his whole life. And he lives in Derby now. And he went to the game. I texted him, saying, you're watching this. He was at the game. And I sent him a text after. I said, you know, must have been an epic night. Kudos for you for making the trip all the way over there when you're 4-0 down. He gave me the most northern answer ever. What do you reckon it was? I'd already bought my ticket. I'm not going to waste 13 pound 50. <laughs> but he got to. Be, he got to be there on an extraordinary night for football. I'll send you the link once you've got to watch this. It's, love it's truly love watching Joe, But, but Listen to the crowd. But listen to the crowd. It's it's unbelievable. Anyway, enough of that. Giles, we have a guest joining us. Why don't you uh, introduce the very fine gentleman who's going to be gracing the airways with us shortly?
2: Yeah, I'm delighted uh, to to be uh, welcoming uh, Mark uh, Brangstrup Watts onto the show for those not in the investment world you may not have heard of him today but he is i think exactly the kind of um investment and finance guy that the sports industry will be looking to and really needs and probably to cherish these kind of people who are are looking at the sports industry his career has been spent well i guess over three decades advising boards of both listed and private companies on their strategic development. That's what he's done. And in 2001, he founded Marwin Investment, which was responsible for, I guess, the IPO of, I think, around about 18, 20 companies and returning an awful lot, like billions of dollars back to investors. And most notably, and for those of us who have children, perhaps Eoni uh, were one of those businesses that owned Peppa Pig. Obviously, Boris Johnson was a, a major fan of Peppa Pig as well. <laughs> In December 2022, he founded um, Wavu, And this is going to be a a world where he's focused very specifically on the sports fan and the sports audience and the seismic shift in global, I guess, sport fandom and really everything we've been talking about for the last three or four years. Because what he's looking to do is to reformat the relationship between the players and the club, say, or the rights holders, and, of course, the all-important fan, and his world, particularly with media, of streaming, of direct consumer actually of content, and what is content and what is compelling content, is all of the things that Are You Not Entertained has been talking about for, for a long time. I think we've been waiting for this guy for a long time to come along and share his thoughts about why on earth would you get into sport? So um, without further ado, let's welcome Mark to the show. Hi, guys. Thank you for having me.
3: Great to see you. Hey, great to see you. How's things in Barcelona, you lucky man living there? Yeah, very nice, thanks. Everyone's very happy that Barca won, obviously. Yeah, absolutely. I was at the Espanyol game, actually, the other day. So uh, when they when they won and stayed on the pitch and celebrated for slightly too long for the Espanyol fans' liking. But it was, uh, it was a great, great evening.
0: Can I, Mark, before I get into the important stuff, can I ask you one question it has been on my mind for years and it's I finally got a chance to ask someone? Pepper Pig. I mean, great, but... Could they do it on a wet Tuesday night in Stoke? This is what I've always wondered.
3: <laughs> uh, I suspect so. I, I think it was, uh, it, it was, I mean, I, I had, you know, very little to do with it other than finding the money and, and the creative people were brilliant. Um, I, I think it was a once in a lifetime kind of uh, business opportunity really. And the guys did a phenomenal job with it. And it's kind of, it's seeped into every house in the world pretty much now. So uh, oh, yeah, don't very, we know it. I've got nothing bad to say about it.
2: Well, nor do I as a parent of, of many children. I, 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 I actually just use this podcast to thank you and all of those people involved for getting Amen. kids to sleep or keeping them occupied. Absolutely. So Mark, we'll, we'll we'll dig into this. And I know Roger's got a lot of well, we all do have a lot of questions. But just sort of in principle, I know that you're an Everton fan. I know that football's your thing. You now live in a football mad city. Is this pivot to sport something, a little combination? Obviously, you see an opportunity. I'd love to understand a little bit more about that. But is there something about the heart in uh, in this or is this all about opportunity and investment?
3: There's always something at the heart in everything you do, hopefully successfully. I think, you know, I've always tried to do things that I've found interesting. I've always been interested in sport. It isn't until recently that I probably felt there was an opportunity to invest in an area in sport that I felt I understood well, which was the kind of intersect between media and sport. And I think sports going through, you know, as you mentioned in the introduction, is going through a situation at the moment where there is a real seismic shift in behavior. And that's particularly pronounced at the younger end of the spectrum. I think you're in a situation with with sport, which is similar to where music was back in 1999. At that point you had, you know, huge proliferation of piracy going on as people looked at the album, particularly younger people, and said, you know, it's just way too expensive. There's only two songs I want off it. I'm just not going to buy it. And, you know, probably in a lot of cases, not wanting to, went out and pirated rights and uh, and downloaded songs using Pirate Bay and Napster and the like. And then a few years later, you saw technology come along, which enabled the industry to repackage the product And ultimately repriced the product. And and as soon as that happened, you started to see it being consumed again legally. It took a long time for the industry, in fact, last year to get back to revenues that were akin to where they were in 99. But people did start to consume it again. And and I think sports in a very similar situation, particularly post-COVID, where you've seen that younger generation really turn off to live sport. And I think that's partly down to the fact that people sat at home with no live sport being on the TV for a period of time, not a lot of other distractions, and, and they largely turned to computer gaming and, and computer gaming sites and, and recreated, I think, a lot of the behavior that you've traditionally seen through the generations in that world. So you go onto Twitch and you watch somebody commentating a, a team playing a you know FIFA or Call of Duty or whatever it may be. That behaviour they're showing is very similar to a sports fan watching a game and having it commentated on. It may be, you know, significantly more commentary, maybe more irreverent. They're probably chatting to each other on chats. They're probably, you know, interacting with the commentary in a, in a to a greater degree than you see in sport. But the base behaviour is not dissimilar. Um, and so that shift in behaviour, I think, is a real challenge for sport because once people break that relationship and break that behaviour it's very, very difficult to change their minds that that actually they should be doing something else. And I think if you look at where sport's going and where it's been over the last 10 years, particularly, I think there's been very little innovation in the way that it's packaged up. There's been significant risk, I think, to the way that it's being priced. And you've seen that already with, you know, unbundling in the the cable packages in the US um, and the fact that, you know, even people like ESPN are struggling to get the economics to match on their direct-to-consumer app. And I think there are some misconceptions around the space that young people aren't interested in sport, that they don't have the concentration to watch a long form match, um, that they're not prepared to pay for it. And I think, you know, what I've been trying to do when you have that kind of perceived wisdom about a change in behavior and audience is to try and dig into that a bit deeper and understand it better. Um, And I think if you go on to, you know, sites like the ones I just mentioned, the Twitches, the Discords, the IRLs, even into the kind of more traditional social channels like Instagram, you're seeing people super interested in sport. You know, there's probably an audience across Discord alone of of 12 to, to 20 million people who are talking about sport every day on that site are totally fascinated by it. Um, and I think if you can repackage the product to make them interested in it again, I think there's an opportunity to bring that audience back to the table, but you've got to make it interesting. And I think that's where the sport's struggling a little bit at the moment.
0: The simple thing here to do for me and Josh to bow out for you and Roger to get a room, because this is this is what we've been listening to for about four years. You know, it's fascinating, you know, because this is exactly what Roger's been saying. And I've been the guy raging against the dying of the light, I guess. And, and I watched this, and I, so I guess there'll be plenty for you and Roger to talk about. So I guess I'll ask you the same question as I've asked Roger over and over again, and, and, he, and he's always got an answer to it. It's never one that's necessarily satisfied me, but that's probably my fault rather than his. And that is the danger of investing in something where you're chasing the next shiny thing. And this has been... I acknowledge everything Roger said. Uh, he's far more right about this than I've been. And I acknowledge everything you've said. But looking forwards rather than looking at the now and wondering whether all the behaviours that make this demographic so attractive, oh, they want highlights, they want short stuff, they don't want to watch 90 minutes, they don't want to watch a five-day test series, they don't want to watch it. Everything's got to be shorter, quicker, splashier, faster. You know, I was very different when I was younger and I've matured in, in how I consume sport. As I've grown, as I've become... Uh, more affluent, as I've had more disposable income to spend on sport, the way I've consumed it has become different. So it is chasing this generation who want you to fundamentally change the way these sports are played and governed and broadcast and everything, it, it, I'm curious as to hear the thinking behind why that's the smart thing to do in a non-Scottish accent.
3: <laughs> I, I think there's a separation in my mind between what's happening at the format level, which I think is part of your question, and what's happening in the broadcast space. I think if you look at what's happened in American football, what's happened more recently in baseball in the US, what the NFL have really kind of been fantastic at doing over the last you know 20 years is innovating the product they already have. So you take the Madden cast on the NFL, you take the red zone on the NFL, you take the level of statistical information that's now fed to you across almost every sport. But I would say baseball has been incredibly innovative in that space. Um, You take the halftime show at uh, at the Super Bowl, which really no other sports managed to replicate to the same degree or even tried in a lot of cases. I think there are examples of innovation in existing broadcast. What I'm talking about is taking that a step further rather than necessarily being totally distinct. So it's taking some of those best ideas and applying them into that audience so that they feel new, but aren't necessarily new. I think the point around... New formats, everything having to be shorter. I think, you know, there are plenty of examples of that having worked and made games, you know, equally good, if not better. Cricket being, I think, one of probably the best examples. I think there's innovation around the edges in things like soccer with the Kings League and what Jared Piquet did there very successfully and marrying, you know, the audience to the product very, very well. But I don't see, I don't see this about being, you know, going after the shiny thing. I think this is actually about, You know, wanting to pass on that love of sport in the way that, you know, we had it passed on to us when we're watching it probably with our dads or our uncles or our mums, and doing that with a product that enables you to get something beyond the base commentary. You know, the way that this has been presented to us over the last 20 years hasn't changed much. The biggest innovation has probably been sticking a time clock on the screen. And that only happened relatively recently. I think what you're trying to do here is you're trying to marry up what a younger audience wants because they feel familiar with it and the IP owners who want to try and reduce the cost of live production. So a lot of the investment that I'm getting involved in is enabling people who are exposed, say, to the regional sports networks in the U.S. to be able to create an OTT product that is fit for purpose, is innovative, but actually just reduces the cost of production. So you're actually able to create, you know, say multiple streams of of audio over a single video stream. You can deal with things like latency. So you can do interesting things on the screen and actually enable people to watch the game at exactly the same point in time. Trying to solve some of these issues, which just make the viewing experience better. And certainly from the IP owners, enable them to get to the consumer at a lower cost and quicker. And with an opportunity to develop additional revenue streams, the big challenge, and I know Roger's talked about it in things he's written, which I've read, the big challenge that the entire industry's got is that it's predicated on one thing at the moment, which is that the value of rights are going to continue to go up. I think, you know, I share the same view as him. I think there's huge risk in making that assumption, whether you're buying a franchise, a league, whether you're investing in sports media at all, I think the only way that you possibly offset that is by creating a product that people want to pay for, and not just the live sport itself, but actually merchandising, quizzes, gaming, gambling. And you're seeing that innovation coming out of people like Sports Radar in the in the US, who are, you know, trying to repackage the product and make people, you know, interact in a different way. You know, sports being particularly in Europe, incredibly poor at monetizing its fans. I know there's a lot of grief about the fact that, you know, tickets are too expensive. Season tickets are, you know, held on to for years and years, that the entire experience doesn't really bear out the cost of it um, live. And that, you know, we've all had to pay way too much money to Sky and to the packaged up cable operators. And that's probably true. But what those platforms that I talked about earlier, you know, does does illustrate is that if you've got a product that people want to pay for, even that younger generation, they will pay. You look at the average subscriptions on Discord for its premium product, it's $9.99, twice the price of ESPN+. You look at what people are prepared to pay for access to, to Twitch, to any of these influencers, creators, whatever you want to call them in social channels that they really, really buy into, where they really feel this legitimacy of relationship. They're prepared to pay. Roblox is a billion-dollar revenue business. The average age of its consumer is less than 16 years old. This audience does have money. It isn't just you and I with credit cards. It's our kids who are using our credit cards to go onto these sites and buy things. But it's a misnomer to believe that that they don't have spending power. They absolutely do, and these sites are illustrating it in spades. You know, you've got multiple channels in the disaggregated social space, which have got over a hundred million people following them, and interacting with them on a daily basis, and spending money on them, and wanting to consume sports content within them. You look at the success of things like overtime in the US in the basketball space, or four three three in Europe in soccer. What they've recognized, which I think will be the onus on IP rights holders, is that that younger audience wants to interact with the player. They want a player-centric model. They want to know or feel that they know the player. And if you can get that tone of voice right, both of those two sites I mentioned had done, you get huge engagement. 16, 17% engagement in those sites. The ability to monetize those audiences effectively, I think is really at the heart of what's going to have to happen to the media industry to enable them to sustain revenue growth in their businesses. It may not be in the traditional ways where the league's gone out and sold the rights for a ton of money, but I think there will be a more active interface and the ones that get that right will will be successful and it isn't going to be everybody.
1: Mark, I don't know where to start with all of that because that – yeah, you, you're taking my side of the trade, so let me try and do the proper thing and, and try and argue against that, even though I agree with almost everything. You mentioned overtime there. Uh, Dan Porter uh, is a friend of this show and a friend of the Como Summit, and he is famous for going around conferences all around Europe with uh, his slide deck where the number one slide, the first slide is, and forgive the French, no, Gen Z will not pay for your fucking OTT. Now, you've said that they will. I'm not sure, right? As I say, I'm trying to argue against myself here. I'm not sure what they're prepared to pay for. I think the intellectual argument is the one you and I hold, and lots of people can disagree with it, but you and I are right. What I'm not sure about is what product this younger generation is prepared to pay for, when it isn't automatically coming off mummies and daddy's credit cards. I haven't got my head around that yet. And I think whatever it is they're prepared to pay for, it's not what you called the bundle. You very correctly make the analogy with the music industry, which just unbundled into hits and fillers, one of the themes on this podcast. So if we take your logic, which I do, you can't separate Grant's question from formats and distribution and monetization. One informs the other, does it not, Mark? If they're prepared and only wanting to pay for player, personality, uh, deep engagement, they're not going to be interested in journeyman product. Tell me where I'm getting that wrong.
3: Well, I think the NBA would probably argue against that. I think the NBA has become a very player-centric league You get people switching from team to team mid-season constantly. You know, you don't know whether the guy that you followed at the beginning of the season is going to be playing at the end of the season. And yet, you've got a hugely engaged younger audience that's following it, you know, week by week, despite the huge overkill in the number of games. Correct. Um, So, I think there are examples of that. You know, those two things coexisting. You know, not many outside of that. But I mean, you know, you could argue, I think, in cricket that the IPL is very personality-driven proposition again you're increasingly being driven towards following the player over the club and I don't think it it necessarily takes away from people's enjoyment so I do think there's an undermining of it gradually across formats across sports and I think that plays into that younger audience quite effectively but you've got to get the balance right and it's not easy to do I do get that I think it's going to be a delicate balance over the you know the coming years. But, you know, I think unless people are prepared to embrace that, you know, or leagues are prepared to embrace that and recognize that's a part of the of the journey. And you've got to have a, a happy medium between obviously people switching every five minutes and, and some sustainability of the, you know, the league's promise, which is that you are going to follow a particular club, even if it's just for that one season.
2: Mark, you've coming into the sports space now, you are a sports fan as well and probably just been a fan. And now you're going to be a business fan as well. You mentioned cricket and everybody does. We certainly do as a sport that has um, really radically overhauled itself from when we were all kids growing up, um, watching sort of county championship cricket, sort of willing them to find some sort of solution and finale to any game. Nobody
0: watched county cricket, Charles. (laughs) No one.
2: Well, I I did. It was the only way I could get a beer off my father. He used to forget how old I was, but that's another story. Um, I wonder, what are the sports... In these early days, what are your sort of runners and riders just sort of hypothetically now the way you feel is a good place to go?
3: Well, I kind of interestingly, I started at the point that you guys did with this show, which is that the strap line for my vehicle is actually, are you not entertained? <laughs> and I and the reason why I picked that was because uh, it kind of came to that, that point, you know, where Proximo talks to, to, to Maximus and he says to him at the end of it, you know, remember, you're an entertainer. And I think those sports that have been successful in shifting format have been the ones that have actually gone to embrace that logic. They said, you know, actually, this is entertainment. You know, US sport we've known for years has been entertainment. The reason why there's a halftime show in the Super Bowl that's so valuable is because they recognize and embrace it almost to the point of exclusion of the actual event. Um, And I think those sports like IPL that embrace it will be successful and have been successful. I think... You know, like any other media property, you need heroes and villains. And the more that you can embrace the heroes and villains, you know, it, it comes to, you talked about earlier, the, you know, what happens, what happened in the Gulf this weekend. Kepka as the villain and Block as the, uh, you know, as the hero of the hour. I think, you know, any media story that has those two components is going to be successful. You've seen it, you know, since the beginning of sport. You know, I remember watching cricket with Murphy's and Graham Gooch, you know, that, that, that rivalry, and the media played up both sides of it, is absolutely essential to sport working. It's why the Netflix series have been so successful, because they they basically unmasked those heroes and villains across those sports and made them interesting for people. It isn't just you know showing the, the middle of the grid and that suddenly makes it more interesting. It's the personalities involved. And I think these sports that embrace that and recognize they have personalities and actually try and help them become as big as the sport and help the sports grow by virtue of that are actually going to be the ones that are successful. I think, you know, you've got an opportunity in tennis at the moment and is an example where I think, you know, you've got the makings of that with say Runa and Alcaraz as two sides of the uh, of the coin. And I think if the media latch onto that, which they haven't done yet, but I think might, that could make tennis for the first time, you know, super exciting again. You had it with obviously McEnroe and Borg. But I think you need that dynamic in a sport at the right at the top of it to make it very interesting. And that enables you then to do clever things with the narrative, recognize you've got an entertainment product and do something with it. Now, you know, I'm an Everton fan, so there's, uh, you know, it's not everything I love about sport. Uh, I do like that kind of, you know, cold, wet, um, whatever the expression used at the beginning, Grant, was. But, the, you know, the, the wet Sunday afternoon kind of experience as well. I think both have a place. But I think if you want to encourage new people to a product, which is what I'm talking about trying to do, then I think you have to recognize what your product is and you have to try and embrace that without obviously losing, you know, the balance of uh, of the audience.
0: Well, can I just ask you, we, we talked about this at the top of the show before you joined us and that's the world of golf because everything we've talked about kind of comes together and, and finds a meeting point in golf. And it's interesting both in terms of trying to change the format Check, Live Golf's done that. Trying to change the way it's broadcast, check, they've tried to do that. But I'm interested because what they've done is they've taken a very individual sport and they've gone the other way. They've tried to make it about teams. So when you look at what Live is trying to do and take the rights or wrongs and moral argument out of it all, how do you assess Live's product offering and how do you assess its likely s- potential of success in the marketplace?
3: I mean, it wouldn't be something that I'd look to invest in for exactly the reasons that you've talked about, which is I think that taking a sport, and particularly where you've gone to take some of the biggest personalities in the sport, you know, you want to embrace the fact that, you know, Poulter's talking out of turn on his Twitter account. You want to embrace the fact that you've got some big characters there and try and manage that narrative with the press and make them interested in the story. I think if you'd had... A team dynamic, you know, that was akin to what Tomorrow Golf were trying to do, where you're micing up the players and hearing the interchat. You know, there's there's some ideas I think you could marry between the two that would have made the team proposition very interesting. Now, I get that I get the reason why they did it. You know, I think they were going for that kind of Ryder Cup style thrill of the team event where everyone's rooting for each other and they put aside their singularities for that period of time. But I think to make an entire you know, annual tournament out of it, I think is, is going to be a struggle personally. I think those, you know, the one-off element of it is the thing that makes it interesting. You know, if England played in the league every week in soccer, you probably wouldn't want to watch it as much as you do because they're playing in a tournament every now and again, and it becomes super exciting. You know, I I think that team sports particularly benefit from rarity, um, particularly at an international level. Mark,
1: let's come back to what you said before because it's profound, and I'm I'm gl- I'm glad to hear somebody else talk about this. There's a double whammy coming at sport, and I want to hear your view on this. First one you mentioned completely about you know the product market fit and how the younger generation completely needs something extremely different. On the other side, you alluded to it, the current model for sport, which is you put out a tender, and your sports rights for a league or a competition go up every every three, four years, that's coming to an end. You you come from the media sector. The media sector is getting a lot more uh, choosy about what content is actually going to make it money. You know, Warner Discovery, I've talked a lot about that. So they are going to have less money to spend and they're going to spend it like music and like Hollywood on franchise, on catalog, on certain things. Where am I wrong in thinking that there's a whole lot of sports that are going to go no bid for their sports rights and are going to look around one day and say, what just hit me?
3: I mean, I, I, I think there are definitely going to be. You're seeing some examples of it already with, you know, was it the Women's World Cup where they've not got a bid at the moment or not got a bid that that's that that acceptable to them and challenging the status quo. we saying they may not broadcast it. I don't think that's, you know, You've seen, you know, women's tennis suffer from a similar thing as well. I mean, I'm super positive about women's sports more generally because I think that, you know, you're going to get and you're already seeing some very savvy investors coming into that space and, and seeing value in it and promoting it properly. And I think they probably will be the innovators. I think, you know, someone like Angel City starting with a blank sheet of paper and doing all the things they've done is, you know, very, very impressive. I mean, I, I think it is a challenge. I think you're going to see fragmentation of those rights. I think you're going to see degradation of the overall value of those rights as media rights but i think you know if you see them as a channel of distribution um not just for the rights themselves but as a point where people can intersect and interact with you then i think you have the capacity to turn them into something else you know you you know the music industry well One of the saviors of the music industry has been synchronization over the last few years. Correct, yeah. That component of music revenues is the thing that's really got them back to where they were back in 99. I think you will see innovation around the fringes of this. And I think that will enable people to capture more value more directly from the fan, you know, in, in ways that they want to, you know, to be interacted with. I think it has to feel legitimate. I think, you know... I didn't really answer your question earlier about subscriptions i I, i'm not convinced that this all gets monetized through subscription i think you'll see you know ad-based models sponsorship-based models a whole range of different things come through to enable people to capture value but i think you're right you'll go through a period you know a decade probably as you did with music where you'll see this you know realignment of um of the kind of current order i think there's going to be a lot of pain in it you know as you've talked about in articles i think Know, the leverage that's been associated with rights and people selling them off or selling the future today i think is going to come badly unstuck because i think you will see these rights inevitably fall in value over a period of time but i think again you know in a more on a more positive note i think you'll see those people that own those rights find other ways of innovating and making money from having that direct relationship or more direct relationship with the fan you know has been other industries and media it's going to be about understanding who your customer is. You know, up until this agree. Point, they push that out the door. You know, they might know who's walking into the stadium, but they don't know who's watching. No,
1: no. Let me add on to that a little bit. This is a little another interesting one when I look at sport and valuation and the way it's organized. Uh, and you alluded to the difference between American sport and, and European sport. And you mentioned um, Angel FC there. Let's go back to Everton for a second because it's in the news and it's rumored that our old friends at 777 are going to buy it. I don't think that's the case, but that's not what I'm asking. The figure was rumored to be about 500 million and everybody this side of the pond struggles with the idea that American MLS franchises are double that. I think LAFC is at a billion. My whole thing is the discount in valuations that we have in Europe because we have open leagues, we have uh, relegation and promotion. I think that's a major netto that is not being grasped in us as kind of like investors and leader in sport trying to find a future. Uh, We just seem to say it has to be this way, it has to be this way and the consequences of that I don't think we're dealing with very well and I think it's going to get worse.
3: Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, I think the MLS valuations are a little bit misleading in the sense that you've got this expansion policy, which kind of drives the valuation up. But, you know, those values haven't really been tested by them being traded yet. So I think there's a kind of, you know, it feels to me a little bit like a paper value rather than a real value. Um, I I mean, I think the point's still valid. I think there's some of the wonderful things that I think about soccer and and I do believe that, you know, the, the, the ability to have relegation is, is a critical part of the formula. You know, I think it's, it makes those games, you know, at this point in the season at both ends of the table, super interesting. And it impacts, you know, that the results at the top, as we saw at the weekend, I think, you know, teams coming from lower leagues, you know, all the drama that you saw with Sheffield Wednesday, I think, you know, a lot of those, you know, those situations, you know, aren't replicated in, in the U S leagues. And there's lots of dead games, which nobody really, you know, shows any interest in nobody really watches. And therefore your ability to do what I'm talking about, which is make them interesting enough for people to actually have a a relationship where they want to buy stuff from you is questionable. You know, you could argue it's still relevant in a fancy league environment, regardless but i think there are you know there are different ways of dealing with it i think the more fundamental problem in in european sport and particularly in soccer but you've seen it in rugby as well is that there's just a general mismanagement of these entities as businesses whether that's at the league level or at the, or the club level you know it's extraordinary to me that manchester united can have a lower revenue than the dallas cowboys when you think about the audience that manchester united has as a business That's totally extraordinary to me. They're just not being managed well as businesses. And that's a business where you've got American owners who've done extremely well for the last few years owning it and taking a lot of cash out of the business, an extraordinary amount of cash out of the business. But I still think at a fundamental level, they're not engaging with the fan well enough to monetize them in any other sport. If you had, you know, hundreds of millions of fans globally, or so any other business, you had a hundred millions of of customers globally, you know, you'd be making a hell of a lot more money than they are. So I, I, you know, and and any, I mean, don't get me started on rugby, but I mean, I think there are so many examples of these businesses being mismanaged, you know, poorly thought through the investment thesis going in, you know, is, is pretty limited. I think, you know, soccer clubs, a lot of it's been around the property rather than the, the business. Um, what can you do with the with the stadium? What can you do with housing around the stadium? Rather than is this a, a viable business? You know, this is a huge industry. The rights market is as big as the music market. Put aside anything that happens outside of the you know the televised area. It it, it should be incredibly valuable, um, and I think will be it's You know, it will be increasingly well managed because I think you'll see institutional money come into it. I think at the moment it's coming in on the wrong basis with the wrong assumption um but you know i i think that will burn people in the short term probably um even the medium term but but i think people will look at it and say this is a a unique proposition sport you don't know what's going to happen you can't script it that isn't other like any other area of music other than possibly live music but even that's become quite anodyne i think Uh, you know this is this is a unique product and i think people will always pay for it
2: Mark, is your view then, I work in this sponsorship world and I'm back buying sponsorship again, which was my former life, um, as listeners know. One of the things I've been quite shocked about as an active buyer again, and I think, I imagine this is the hypothesis and what you talk about with, say, the Dallas Cowboys and Manchester United, but also talking to to fellow people in the industry is quite how little um, the sector, the, the sports sector, know about its own fan base. Has that shocked you now that you've come in As this sort of, if you like, with a a blank page going right, this is the sports sector. Has that been something that has sort of taken you aback? Given that that there is passion for sport, whatever those sports may be, clubs, leagues, whatever it may be, but just that dearth of knowledge. Because as a modern purchaser now, if you're a a corporation looking to invest in, you don't really want to be buying media eyeballs. You want to be buying real fans with real connection. Has that been something that's taken you aback? Because it's something we've obviously talked about a lot. On this show.
3: I I mean, I think it's kind of it it's endemic across every aspect of the business. It's not just the fan relationship, it's the lack of data being used across the businesses as a whole. You know, you have got isolated examples on the pitch of people like Brentford and Brighton and others in the soccer world applying data to try and in you know inform not just who they're buying, who they're selling, but what they're supposed to be doing each week, depending on who the, you know, the, the opposition is but you know in other aspects of the business trying to understand that direct relationship with the fan trying to interact in you know those those environments where you can get a direct relationship with the fan uh, i think you know they they're still miles behind any uh, almost any other sector i mean it, it's comparable to the magazine sector i think you know 10 years ago where you know the magazine environment felt uh, misunderstood that their customer was you and i not the advertiser um, yeah. <laughs> and as soon as uh, as soon as you went online, you suddenly realised you didn't know who anyone was. Now the US market showed the difference between data and not having uh, having data and not having data, because most of the magazines weren't bought at the newsstand; they were um, sold on subscription and sent through the post. So they did have some data, which is why they almost invariably outperformed their European counterparts. But I think, you know, there are, we've always tried and things, you know, we've done invested in the past to try and learn from other sectors. I think the sports industry has, you know, a huge amount of learning to do about the use of data. I think there are plenty of great tools out there to enable that um, and people working on even better ones. And I think, you know, the application of AI across these large data sets now that are available in sport, I think will start to really revolutionize that understanding very, very quickly, both on and off the pitch. But I think it will enable, you know, not only clubs and leagues, but I think you're already starting to see, you know, the players looking at that and saying, actually, if I understand my audience really well, if I've got engagement, I'm not just going to do the first endorsement deal that walks through the door. I'm actually going to create a product that I know my uh, my audience is going to want to buy from me because I'm using data to inform those decisions.
0: Mark, let me ask you, we've spent a lot of time, in the, certainly in the last kind of year, maybe 18 months, talking about a big change and and that is the cost of capital because one of the things that's obviously fueled the massive increase in sporting valuations has been very very easy access to incredibly cheap if not free money how do you approach this given that we we're in a very different world you know, the cost of capital is increasing at the same time assets are priced at incredibly high levels and the market's yet to kind of reconcile those two. I suspect it means valuations have to come down rather than bids go up because the bids are going to struggle to find the necessary capital to match the valuations. You strike me as someone who in the financial world we, we refer to as a value investor. And so I'm curious as to how you think about investing in sports franchises at this particular moment in time where you have this air pocket between bids and offers and you have rising cost of capital you know, as, a, as a kind of grim reaper looming over your shoulder. How do you think about that?
3: I mean, I, I think that's going to inform people's decision on the franchise they invest in. I mean, Everton's a great example of it. You've got 140, 150 million of debt on the balance sheet and, you know, no one's going to be paying an enterprise value of 650 for the club. It's just not going to happen. Well, uh um, well, in a couple of weeks, so... it'll be half
1: price, I reckon. They're <laughs> 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 not going down, Leicester's going down. Leicester's going down, yeah, exactly.
3: I, I think as, as the debt that sits within those clubs gets, you know, it starts to get refinanced and people start to realise that actually, you know, they're not going to be able to borrow it even you know twice what they they probably got the the debt sitting in the books at. It, it's going to be a very, very uncomfortable journey. I think you're going to see a lot of clubs go bust. I think you know the inefficiency and in capital structure in these businesses is extraordinary. um yeah. you know, the I mean everything that's not nailed down is leveraged. you know, it's extraordinary to me that that you've got you know every transfer, you know, with 50, 60% of leverage on it, let alone the media set, the media rights and the ticketing and everything else. And I think, you know, while while I can understand why people want to lend against transfers, because it's a relatively risk-free trade, because you get booted out the league if you mess it up, I'm struggling to see why people are lending um, or buying into, you know, revenue streams for media at the prices they're buying into them at. It, It just doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. You know, and you can see it happen as quickly as, you know, a week and a half's time. You know, if the if the debt ceiling doesn't get sorted out in the US, you're going to see interest rates go up through the roof. Um, now not that I think that necessarily will happen, probably unlikely, but it's definitely a possibility as we sit here today. So anybody that's got a refinancing within the next month or two, you know, is going to be feeling, I would think, or should be feeling very, very nervous. And I, And I do think that has an impact on franchise values. I totally agree with that. I think there are, you know, increasingly savvy investors looking to put together funds to invest in these franchises, but I think they're going to be structured on the basis that, you know, the Clear Lakes and others are, are talking about, which is, you know, 25% uh, you know clips into existing equity strips, you know, which are just gonna just gonna take value from the existing owners. You know, I think that's what will happen with Everton. I think you'll see, you know, you'll see an investment come into the club, but it's gonna be a you know 20, 25% compound paper. And, and and all that's going to do is just just take value away from existing equity holders, because you're not going to see the club go up in value at anything like that rate. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you'll see a redistribution of wealth, if you like, amongst um, those institutional investors and the equity holders in a lot of franchises. You know, there are things that you can see on a positive front. I think, you know, someone takes over, an institutional investor takes over. Syria and and creates a framework within which people want to actually, you know, invest in clubs and build stadia and do other things there, which has been desperately needed for, for years, you know, you could see that flip on its head. So you, there are examples where I think you can see an increase in value in some of these places. But, you know, a lot of a lot of damage has already been done. People have already mortgaged the future in a lot of cases.
1: Mark, because of that, let me ask a little bit about your investment vehicle, how you structured that the size of it and the sweet spot of what you're looking for. We had Michael Spirito of Sapphire on a couple of weeks ago and he had this lovely phrase that I bookmarked, I'm going to get more product market fit for my dollar now. What are you looking to invest in in this investment vehicle of yours and in what kind of size?
3: So. I mean, we're in a very early stage, so it's you know we're just in the process of of still evaluating you know where we think the best opportunity in the market is. I think you know that sweet spot that that they had been focused on, which is that kind of you know probably post seed to Series A. I think there's you know there's still real opportunity there. I think you are already seeing. If not an absolute repricing, certainly more of a focus around kind of pref structures where people are looking to protect their downside. Um, and, you know, but still put money to work because I think founders are still going through that kind of, there's a bit of a price discovery, I think, going on on both sides of the equation. Oh, it's you know,
1: discovered, Mark, has discovered the price and it's not the one of yesterday.
3: <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it isn't the one of yesterday. Absolutely right. That That's the bit of discovery that's happened. Yes, um, it has. But, but, what, but what price it is, is still an issue. And I think, you know, this is an interesting area because, you know the sports market as a whole is is relatively uncorrelated. You know, you think yes. about you know the amount of capital that's flowed into the transfer window in the last transfer window. You know, maybe you know ridiculously at a point where the UK is at you know in desperate measures as an as an economy. You know, I think you're still seeing because of the changes, because of the impacts of the things that are happening in sports. You are seeing people like the sapphires, like the courtsides, you know, the, the really savvy investors in this space still putting money out the door. They are repricing the deals, but but I think they're doing it with an eye to, to ensuring that they've still got an incentivized management. And this is always a tricky stage where you go through this recalibration. But the, you know, but those funds that have got capital, I think, you know, velocity, et cetera, they're still doing deals in the marketplace and looking at at, at trying to find Um, good management who understand what the investment thesis is, can articulate it properly um, and have a team around them that can actually go out and deliver. But where I do think it's unusual as a sector is I still think you've got a huge amount of demand for these products from the market itself, because people are, particularly in the US, are really, really focused on trying to solve this problem, particularly in the area where I'm, I'm looking at the moment. They are looking at the RSN's and thinking, actually, a lot of these may fail. What am I going to do to compensate for that revenue stream? And so that is fostering some innovation, that is creating use cases for these businesses, probably at an earlier point in the cycle than they would have expected. And so I think you are going to see people put capital behind those businesses, You know, myself included, You know, who can grasp that opportunity. Because I think you're going to get the very unusual situation where people like the Premier League and the NBA and these are going to interact with companies with relatively small, unproven revenue streams, but very experienced management or decent management at the very least, and give them a chance, which doesn't happen often. Uh, And I think you're going to see that happen over the next couple of years. And I think people will will put capital behind that.
1: I I think that's right. Before my colleagues come in, I just, what you say is so true. You know, like one of the companies I'm involved in, um, the aggregating platform Aura, the approaches they've had from rights holders now the smarter ones that realize everything that you've said on this podcast and are trying to kind of like cover their bases if that's the best way to do it and thinking about, well, how do I get into a more doing, not viewing type uh, uh, way of thinking? I think for smart people, the kind of disruption that's going to happen now in sport and in the next 24, 48, 48 months, there's just going to be so many opportunities because as you said, Music didn't die 20 years ago. It's even more popular. It's just the model changed. The economics changed, the value chain. That's why I'm always interested to speak to people like you and hear what the thesis is, because a lot of theses are nonsense. Like, you know, if we invest enough, we'll get this club into the premiership and that'll be a re-rating. Another one that I, I don't like is, oh, American franchises are valued like this, so we we can have a convergence play. But if the way you're talking I think with people with capital and know what they're doing, this is going to be an amazing two or three years, Mark.
3: Yeah, and I think you've also got the backdrop of what's happening in the technology space. You know, if you think about these businesses, most of them are software businesses. And software is going to go through probably the most extraordinary change, you know, since I've been looking at it over the last 20 years, because AI is going to enable you to scale product at a cost and pace that's never been available before and that you know while it may not be a reality for these small companies at the moment to access those types of agents it will become the reality very very quickly so i think you're going to see the ability for people who've got you know very strong technical people senior architects um, of their product enable the scaling of those products which is really key in broadcast because it's all about concurrent users It's a very complex arena, uh, you know, and and in my space, you're talking about live, which is, you know, difficult to predict, if not impossible to predict. So you've got a whole range of different, um, you know, matrix of problems you've got to try and solve. um, And that's a real technical challenge. But the ability to take a product and take it from, you know, that overall architecture, you know, 50 user testing to half a million to a million to 10 million um, is something you're going to be able to do within that time frame, on a totally different basis to which you've been able, ever able to do it before. And that's going to give these companies huge opportunity with new product and with, you know, with willing clients who want to take, you know, with an understanding that, you know, not everything's going to be right. And I think, you know, the challenge for a lot of these businesses and hopefully people like myself and others who are investing in them can give counsel around this. The challenge is going to be, Ensuring that you you know don't overpromise and and uh, uh, you know and certainly deliver on what you said to the customer, because I think if you get it right, then there's just a massive opportunity ahead of you. So yeah, I, I'm I'm extremely positive about the backdrop. I think like all kind of all sectors that are going through big change, you have to be cautious and you have to take your time and you have to try and work out. You have to, you know, do your exercise of mapping the market and making sure you do understand what what technology is out there and not just what sounds good, but what's actually been implemented and what works um, with inverted commas. But I think if you're, you know, as I've always tried to be, if you're cautious about what you do and you you spend time trying to really diligence these businesses and talking to people in the industry about their experiences with the product, then I think hopefully you can, you know, avoid most of the potholes. You're never going to avoid all of them.
0: Mark, I'd, l- I'd love to slip one more question in before we finish, if I can. Um, how do you go about evaluating a new sport? You know, we, we mentioned in passing paddle and or or padel, as I think as Charles uh, pronounces it, uh, paddle <laughs> tennis. It's always been paddle to me, Charles, and pickleball. But how how do you, as an investor, how do you weigh up? Because obviously, there's an awful lot of coverage of pickleball. It's a massively fast growing sport, but it hasn't bedded in. It doesn't have any kind of track record, you don't really know how the whoever runs the World Pickleball Association or whatever it is, you don't know how they handle different parts of that journey. Do you look at that in terms of, well, we need to wait and see, or do you look at that as an opportunity? To, maybe we can get in there and help shape the way they they map their path out and help them take the right path instead of going down some of these dead ends that, that we all know exist out there
3: for new sports. I mean, I think there is a role for people to do that. My, my guess is, you know, most investors will look at that particular sport and say actually you know unless they're doing it because you know they're doing it as a bit of fun around the edges and and you know it's a little bit like remember the film industry when we first started investing in that um in e1 we uh we got told by a um a studio head you know there's 10 reasons why people invest in film you know the first five have nothing to do with making money i i think there's a lot of uh I think there's a lot of that in some of these early stage sports, particularly pickleball, where people are, you know, playing it socially and excited about it. You can see how quickly it's grown in the US. I'm personally not a great believer in that sport, just simply because I think it's not as, you know, I think paddle's a superior product. And I think that particularly the move to see the two governing bodies merge is actually going to be a huge step forward for for that internationally. I think you'll see, you know, that very well-funded I think, you know, they've they've taken it on a journey. And I think as you see the first generation come into that sport who've played it since they were youngsters, at the moment, you've got a lot of ex-tennis players who are in the top 10, particularly on the women's side of the sport. Um, I think as the real specialists come in, that will improve and improve and improve. You'll see, you know, a similar thing to to what you've seen over the last 10 years in tennis, where the, the level of the game, the level of variety, the quality of shot making will just increase and increase and increase. And that will make it even more, I think valuable as a sport. So that, that, that sport, I think, you know, ticks a lot of boxes for me in that it's got, you know, it's sorted out its governance issues, at least in the short term, it has a very large playing population. I think it's as good a game to play as it is to watch, which is not always the case. Um, I think it's extremely social. And I, I think that has, you know, real legs. Pickleball, I'm less sure about the kind of the the foundations that you're sitting upon. Not that I don't think it's a good game to play. I think it is. It's fun to play in the same way that table tennis is fun to play. Yeah, well, table tennis, I'm, I don't know if any of you guys are any good at it. It is
2: very good fun to play, and I am still never won a point in my life. So um, listen, I think, Mark, we're going to have to uh, cut this one. We thought we'd have half an hour with you. We've had just uh, just under an hour, and I think we could have gone on, on, and on, and on. I'm just personally very excited that you are getting involved in the sports industry, even if it means that you are constantly going to be in agreement with Roger, which Grant and I will find extremely irritating on a personal level. But there we are, we'll we'll suck that up one as best we can. As you know, I think I did mention to you before, we have a a sports summit in Como that Roger and his business has set up, which we had our inaugural event last year, which was by invitation only a a very eclectic and brilliant bunch of people who come along and, and debate this beloved industry of ours, which is going through an enormous amount of change as passion and experts from all sorts. And we would absolutely love you to come and join. I think you'd be certainly on Roger's side of the camp um, and you'd be a vocal and very welcome member if you'd like to come along. We can Indeed. send you details. But if you can make it, many... that would be great.
3: Thank you. It's very kind. Well, I think many
2: of our the people who come along, we're, we're all learning from each other all of the time, and I think that's really the point of it. Sometimes I, I think we probably all get this, Grant, Roger, and I. We, you know, are we being too naysaying about the industry, and what? And people ask that particularly about Rog, actually, because Rog is is, is strong of view. So thank and, and you for what coming always... on
1: today, Mark.
2: Yeah, that's I'm golden. golden. I'm golden. <laughs> but what I always say to people is what you don't know about, Roger, is there is probably no one more passionate about the sports industry than Roger and wants to see the next, you know, 2.0 sport to be sport um, developing for the future for our children and grandchildren. So if that isn't too pompous a comment, please come to Como. The wine's fantastic, the pasta outstanding, <laughs> and there's always a good party. So, um, But thank you for coming on the show today. I know that we're going to get a lot of feedback from from our many listeners who are learning all of the time and it's been such a pleasure to have you on the show
0: yeah, it's been a pleasure thank you very much gentlemen yeah really enjoyed it thanks so much thank okay. you thanks, well, thanks Mark see you soon well 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 Jens, what a tremendous conversation um, You know, as you said we, we we thought we were going to have half an hour with Mark and we ended up with an hour which is uh, I guess we went into extra time how, how good was that you, you, the only thing now is for Rog to lose this on penalty somehow so hopefully we can make that no, happen no I'm not going to lose it <laughs>
1: penalties my thoughts in the last couple of minutes is that you know I'm getting a bit old and uh, there's my replacement. He's he's, he's investment vehicles. He even get the same strap line. I I, I know what I know, I know. where the podcast can go now.
0: <laughs> my yes, work right. is
1: done. My well, the is artist done. has seen Jesus. My work is <laughs> <has> done.
0: <laughs> yeah, now that was uh, that was a fantastic conversation. Well, listen, fellas, it's always good to get together these little chats. Our thanks to Mark for joining us and sharing his considerable expertise with us. We'll be back again very soon. In the meantime, if you don't follow us on Twitter, you can put that right with a few clicks of a mouse. You'll find us at entertain the R, that's the word A R E. You'll find myself at TTMYGH. And you can find me, Giles Morgan, at Giles Morgan71.
1: And you can find myself at RPM Como, as in the lake. As in the lake. Gentlemen, until next time. Cheers, fellas. Cheers, thanks. Thanks, Jimmy.